So we are uh, continuing on now. We've been kind of stuck sort of on the Holy Spirit, uh, but we've been talking about the people and what they teach about the Holy Spirit more than the Holy Spirit itself. It's kind of been a strange segue here. And we talked the first three weeks about uh, the group that's very hyper-spiritual, the people I refer to as the spirit chasers, who are well, always wanting to see these great miraculous experiences. And we talked about the fact that there's nothing wrong with seeking experiences in the Lord, but we can't do it at the, at the expense of other things like, you know, staying in the teaching of, the ter- of, of Christ. Um, today, we're going to start the other side, or what I call the west side. The other was the east side. This is the west side. And this is the, what I refer to as the spirit deniers. They're the ones who say the Holy Spirit really isn't active. It's here, but it's not active. It's kind of quiet. Uh, another way I've heard this group described is the Father, Son, and Holy Bible group. Uh, because they, they really diminish the role of the Holy Spirit and they kind of elevate the role of the Bible where uh, you know, it almost seems as though they've, they've kicked the Holy Spirit out of the Trinity. So going back to the original question, if you guys remember from three weeks ago, those of you who are here, I really think that this side of the group has somewhat to do with how you came to the Lord, just like the other side. The other side, they kind of came to the Lord through an experience of some sort, and so when they want to grow as a Christian, they want greater experiences. It's natural, and it's not even wrong. But a lot of people came through the Word itself. Um, a couple of people here last night literally were reading the Bible and realized this is, this is truth. And some people, you know, maybe like in a hotel room on the end of their rope, and they reach for the Gideon Bible, maybe even by accident, and they read it for the first time, and, it, and they come to the Lord through the Word. God's Word's powerful. He says, I don't send my Word out and have it come back to me empty. So God's Word has power in it, and some people came to the Lord through the power of the word. So if that's how you started and someone says, well, now you need to grow in the Lord, what do you think? Well, I'm going to have to go deeper in the word, right? That's because this is how I got into Christianity. Now I'm going to have to go deeper in the world word in order to learn more about Christianity and to go deeper in Christianity. Uh, So again, uh, everything we're doing is kind of being guided here by second Peter when uh, Peter writes and says, therefore, beloved, knowing this beforehand, be on your guard so that you're not carried away by the air of unprincipled men and fall away from your own steadfastness, but grow in grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. We talked about the grace part. Now we're going to talk about the knowledge part. Neither one should should eliminate the other one. Uh, It just seems to somehow do that. So when we're talking about going deeper in his word, what does that mean to people? And uh, how how is that structured in, in, in a way that makes sense to us? So I want to talk about it because this is kind of the way, honestly, my Christian life began. Uh, I you know, was a preacher's kid, so naturally I kind of just grew up in the church. My dad was speaking uh, the word, you know, he was reading from the Bible, and I just always kind of accepted that that was the truth. And then I went to a Bible study up in uh, Franklin, PA, a little bit north of Butler, called Seneca Hills. It's still there, by the way. Uh, and this was their slogan, that I may know him. That was uh, actually coming from, a, from Philippians 3.10, it's not the whole verse, but it's part of it, that I may know him. And that's what I was kind of taught. Our whole Christian life is just getting to know God better. And so once you're saved, the rest of your life is just this learning experience, uh, and we're supposed to go deeper in the Word, and we're supposed to understand God deeper, and that's the Christian life. Uh, Okay, let me put some other things there. We're supposed to get to know God better, study the Word to find out what we should do as a Christian, what we shouldn't do as a Christian, and uh, that's the Christian life. And I I don't think that's probably different from many of you, and that's kind of how how the Christian life was presented to me, or maybe it wasn't, maybe that's just how I heard it, but that's what I thought. Study, 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 you know, obey, 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 you know, and then I ought to put that in a rhyme. It makes you, you know, a good Christian. 
But if we go back and we take a look at why did Jesus come, I think it's important to do that because we're Christians, right? We're supposed to be following the teachings of Jesus Christ. So why did Jesus come? There's a lot of things told us to us in the Bible. Jesus himself specifies a few times, I have come for this. Uh, and Paul in his writing sometimes says Jesus came for this. But what you'll never find is him to say, um, I have come to leave you your homework assignment after I leave. You will now study for the rest of your life. There'll be a test upon your ascension. You know, that's not how this starts. That's not what Jesus Christ came. In fact, in John, he says to them this. He says, look, I now no longer call you servants because a servant doesn't know his master's business. Instead, I've called you friends. For everything I learned from my father, I have made known to you. He says, I'm, I'm bringing you in now as friends. And later he talks about actually abiding in the Lord. And when Paul writes about it, he puts it this way. God sent forth his son, Jesus, born under the law, so that he might redeem those who were under the law, that we might receive the adoption as sons. Because you are sons, God has sent forth the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. He's saying, you didn't have this by nature, but because you have the Holy Spirit, it's actually crying out to your father. There's a, there's a, there should be a yearning in you for your father. And, and so, yeah, Abba, Father, that's, that's like actually what the little kids say when they run forward and dad comes home. You know, in, in the Middle East, Abba, Abba, Father, Father. They're saying, Abba, Abba. And they have put their arms up. They come running towards him. And that's when the dad picks them up and everybody giggles. And it's such a warm. That's the description that Paul's giving us. That's what your life is supposed to be. Therefore, you're no longer a slave. You're no longer servants. Same thing Jesus said. But a son, and if a son, you're an heir through God. This is how you have a right in, to, to come into heaven. So that's the purpose of Jesus coming. Not to give us a homework assignment, not to make us Christian Pharisees, but to restore our relationship to our Heavenly Father. And so that kind of, asked, kind of brings the, the whole thing around to me a little bit because I was, I was thinking about this. And when we're told to go deeper, what does it mean? Well, there is this kind of sense that, you know what, God's done everything. You just, you're just kind of doing your part now. And this is the way it's described, and you've probably heard all this too. Uh, God did everything. He created you originally in the world and everything that's in it. And then he gave us instructions. That's the New Testament. I mean, that's the Old Testament. That's the commandments in the Old Testament. Of course, we couldn't keep them. And um, so we fell short of righteousness. So he came and redeemed us. You know, well, you can't do this. I'll do it for you. And he came forward to redeem you. And then finally, at the end of it all, uh, he gave us the Bible. You know, to so make sure that he had his words written down, Old Testament, New Testament, that's complete. Now the rest is up to you. And I don't know if you guys picked up on this, but just in case you didn't, I don't want to be too subtle. Uh, when I put what I believe God is saying, it'll be in white. When you see the yellow, that's what other people are saying. And, you know, just so you know, that's my color cue for you. All right. The rest now is up to you. It's now your responsibility to get to know God. He's done everything, and he's done doing everything. In fact, we'll get into the theology of this belief next week, but they literally believe that the Holy Spirit cannot speak to you today, could not do it, because if the Holy Spirit spoke to you, that means the Bible's not finished being written, because the Holy Spirit spoke to the apostles and to the writers of the New Testament in order that they would write the New Testament. When that was finished, when the last of them passed away, the Holy Spirit no longer had any need to do that. So now it's finished, uh, called canon in the Catholic Church. It's finished, it's complete. And if God still speaks to Christians, then he's still writing the Bible. 
And since we know God isn't still writing the Bible, God no longer speaks to Christians. This is the teaching. Everybody's looking at me strangely, but I'm just telling you what the teaching is. But that kind of puts it all on you now, right? Because you can't even count on the Holy Spirit to speak to you necessarily through the Word. You just kind of have to do it. In fact, um, what we've done is we've created a system for doing this. Study Him systematically, understand the mystery, and be better. Kind of the rules of, you know, this whole thing. As you understand the mystery, you'll become better because you'll know what's, what's, what has uh, required of you, right? We just basically become Christian Pharisees because, honestly, this is what they did. They had a system for studying everything, and, uh, you know, you may have heard terms thrown around if you've been around Christians for long enough, and exegesis, and hermeneutics, and all this stuff, you know, these Greek terms for studying the Bible. And if you don't have time to do it, that's okay. Just go find a pastor who does, and he'll spoon-feed you, you know, and he'll give you your life application and everything. Everything's right there for you. And don't, don't you trouble yourself, right? Uh, but remember, Jesus didn't come for that. He came for relationships. So have you, have you ever had a relationship like that before? Have you ever had a relationship where all the burden to understand was on you, not the other person, on you? And you spend all your time trying to understand that person better. Because actually, I have had that. I just don't have it now, happily, in my life. Um, I'm, I'm married to Victoria. We don't have that relationship. And in fact, when I met a Victoria, and we had, we had uh, emailed for months, some of you know our story, and then I flew to meet her in Ukraine. And when I met her, I thought, if she's the person in this letter, <laughs> if the person who's been writing me these letters is actually the person I meet, I'm going to marry her. Because I was, you know, 41 years old. You can't waste time when you're 41. You ain't got to get moving. But uh, so I'm going to marry her. You know, I met her on Monday. I proposed to her on Wednesday. And I know that seems quick, but remember, I was old. So, you know, I had to, had to move fast while someone would still have me. So, uh, but, but here's the thing. Now, now my proposal was kind of uh, comical because her English was only so-so. So it was a little bit of words a lot of gestures and some drawing on paper to make sure that she got the understanding of, of how it is. I mean, it's like now it's kind of funny, but um, even if I were eloquent and, you know, I could speak eloquent Russian or something and, and go in detail in the proposal, here's what my proposal did not sound like. This did not sound like. You are the most amazing person I've ever met, and I just want to spend the rest of my life getting to know you better. That was not my proposal. That might kind of sound quasi-romantic to some people, uh -huh. but believe me, uh, ladies, if you ever have a man hand you a ring and say, I just want to spend the rest of my life getting to know you better, hand it back and say, when you know me and you know you want to marry me, we'll do this. But if you still don't know, uh, maybe we shouldn't be doing this. I did not marry Victoria because I wanted to get to know her better. I'm not writing a book on the Ukrainian woman's mind. I'd be on page two on it right now, but if I were, but uh, you know, that's not the purpose of this. It wasn't to study her and get to know her better. I married her because I wanted her in my life. I wanted to be with her. I wanted her with me. I wanted to be with her. I wanted us to be together, which is the point of a relationship, isn't it? It doesn't matter if it's a romantic relationship or a f familiar, a familial, uh, family member relationship, or even just a friend, you know, now we might not use a term, you know, guys, we don't use the term relationship. We use the term hanging out, right? But, but you have a friend because you hang out together. You do things together. You, and, and that friendship is based on what? Doing things together. Guys especially. It's all based on doing things together. Women, they get together, share, and talk. Guys get together and we, you know, go shoot things or something. But, uh, but we do things together, right? That's the whole point. The relationship is built on this, being together. The relationship's not built on how well I know you. Now, as a matter of fact, because I am not completely, totally clueless, in the 17 years almost that we've been married, I have learned things about Victoria. 
right? Things I didn't know about her when I, when I uh, proposed to her. And that does happen in a relationship. You get to know these people pretty well, but that's not your purpose. Your purpose is just to be with them. I think it's important to notice that Jesus Christ is basically saying, I want to restore you with your relationship with your father. Guess why? He just wants to be with you. That's what he wants. He wants you to be with you. And, and, and what we say is, no, 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 I need to go study this. And I think there's two things driving that, and, and uh, both of them are, are, are possibly dangerous. Again, you can study the word and go deeper in the word and be a good Christian. I'm not saying you can't. But I want to point out to you, because I have had this relationship too, and I, I don't know if any of you have had this relationship, but I've had a relationship that I did study the other person a lot. I spent a lot of time thinking about it, and I spent a lot of time trying to figure out what made them tick, what made them happy, what made them angry. But it did not come from a place of love. It actually came from a place of fear. We actually call this a dysfunctional relationship, and I've been in one. And if you have been too, you know what I'm talking about. All the burden's on you. That person doesn't change. They don't even know they're doing anything wrong. In fact, they can't even face that they're doing something wrong. Uh, everything is right, but it is affecting you. In my case, it affected me either in, in moments of rage on the other person or moments of, of depression, and, and it could flip like that. And when it wasn't flipped, everything was great. You know, uh, she was really a, a wonderful person, intelligent, caring, loving, creative, all these things that you'd expect from a person. But man, something would flip, a switch would go off, and suddenly it would be totally different. It's like dark cloud comes over. And I thought, man, if I could just figure out what's causing that switch to flip, I'd have a happy marriage. But without it, it was actually scary. And I, I, I mean scary. I mean, I faced down the barrel of a Smith & Wesson 9mm pistol once with a chamber loaded, with a bullet in the chamber. And when that happens, by the way, the Smith & Wesson has a hairpin trigger. Half a pound of pressure is all it takes. 25 feet away, I was staring at it. And, it, and you know, just a twitch, really, and it's over for me. I had that. But um, now you would think, well, and then the next day you went out and filed divorce. No, it would be a couple years before I was, actually several years before, because I kept trying to think, well, okay, whatever I was doing there didn't work. That system's not working. Maybe I need a different system. What triggered it? What triggered it? And, and you spend all your time studying that person because you don't want them to go off. And you're studying them, and you're trying to figure out how to make them predictable. Now, how in the world does that ever become normal? Because some of you probably have been in that kind of relationship and like, well, that was my life. That's some people's life with God. God is really out there and he's powerful and I can't know what he's going to do next. And it scares me. So I need to study him and analyze him because if I could figure that out, then I don't have to worry about his, uh, his, his unpredictable nature, right? How does that become normal? Well, uh, I have two scientists here to explain it to you. They're talking, and here's how normal happens. I'm so angry about the toilet paper. Why couldn't they leave it next to the toilet? That proximity was so elegant. They think if it's harder to reach, that will use less of it. They've destroyed going to the bathroom for me. It used to be just a weird human function. Now it's actively stressful. Okay, look, just take the roll off of the dispenser and bring it with you before you sit. That's what I do. Well, that's not normal, Phil. It becomes normal if you keep doing it. Everything does. If you just keep doing it long enough, everything becomes normal. And I'm, I'm just really afraid that we have accepted things as normal in our Christian walk that really just aren't normal. And I think it comes from two places, to be honest with you. I think it's driven by, and we'll get this next week, a sense of pride. I know the Bible better than you. 
so I know what I'm talking about more than you. Uh, we'll get to that next week. But I also think it comes from a place of fear for some people. They really honestly are fearful of what God will do. I, I had this happen after I was a pastor. This is a true story. Um, a woman who worked in retail told me one day, well, God certainly taught me a lesson yesterday, you know, because I made the mistake of asking her how to go, you know, how, how you doing? I think that's all I said Sunday morning. How you doing? Dangerous question sometimes. Some of your answers are scary. And so she's, well, God taught me a lesson yesterday. Oh, really? I like learning lessons from God. What, what did God tell you? Uh, well, um, what happened was I was mean to a customer at work. And I could tell I was mean. I was a little short with her and I was just having a bad day. And I just felt convicted by the Holy Spirit that that was wrong and I should apologize to her. And I saw her a couple other times and I didn't do anything. I just didn't. And I know I should have. And um, so God got me back for that. <laughs> and on the way home, my car ran out of gas. Really? That's what he did? He sent Gabriel to siphon gas out of your tank? You know, is that what he did? And I ran out of gas. That's God teaching me. And it was a good lesson because it started raining on my walk home, you know, or walk to get gas. I'm like, wow. I think uh, you should probably learn that when your little e-light comes on, you need to put gas in the car. I think that's probably the lesson here. I don't think God sent an angel to siphon gas, but that is really honestly what some people think. God is looking for you to get out of line. He's going to whack you back in, and it's scary because he'll do these things, and some people really are convinced of this. They've been taught that they're evil, wicked people, uh, and, you know, our, you know it's, that part's true to, to, to a degree. I mean, you know, we, we don't have the righteousness, and because of that, God has no choice but to punish you, punish you, punish you. Not future punishment. Right here, right now, every time your life goes bad, it's God trying to teach you a lesson. Um, listen, God uses bad things in your life to teach you a lesson. He certainly does. But it doesn't mean he sent the bad thing in your life to teach you a lesson. I mean, I've had a lot of bad things in my life happen that were self-inflicted. And even through my self-inflicted stupidity, God taught me a very valuable lesson. But that doesn't mean God sent me to be stupid. I will just make Mark stupid today, so he does this stupid thing, and then I can finally teach him because he's stubborn. That's not how this works. But yet, there is this thing that you've heard of, because preachers like to preach on it, called the fear of the Lord. It's a thing. It's, it shows up in the Bible like the Old Testament 32 different times. The fear of the Lord, the fear of the Lord. And one of the, one of the best examples of it is in Proverbs. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. The knowledge of the Holy One is the beginning of understanding. That's pretty clear. If you want to be wise, it starts with the fear of the Lord. That's how it starts. And then when you understand the knowledge of the Holy One, that's God. When you start understanding who God is, that's the beginning of all your understanding. So that's right there in the Scriptures, you know, so clearly God's telling us, fear me, fear me, fear me. We've even heard that expression used, right? Some people, I'm going to put the fear of God in them, which they never mean the fear of God, right? But they mean the fear of them. But they're trying to, they're trying to say, yeah, you need to be God-fearing. And that used to be an expression you'd hear. I don't think you really hear so much of it anymore, but that used to be an expression, God-fearing. Well, what does that even mean? Well, the interesting thing is if you jump over the New Testament, you have this very peculiar verse. Uh, John's writing in a letter, and he says, look, there is no fear in love. Wait a minute, what? You know, fear of the Lord's beginning of wisdom. There is no fear in love. In fact, perfect love casts out fear. So he's saying perfect love, that'd be God, right? Cast out fear. Like what is going on here? Now when you see these things, what you're hoping for, so I'm gonna go do a deep etymology dive of this word fear, and we go back and do a deep etymology dive of the Hebrews fear, and I'll find the difference. So unfortunately, Hebrews is using almost the same word or the same connotation as we hear, see here in, in, in the Greek. It's the same idea. It's the same. It's fear. And, and he's talk, they're both talking about the same thing. 
So uh, are they contradictory? No, actually they're complementary. This is a continuation of thought. Watch, because fear involves punishment, and the one who fears is not perfect in love. What John is saying here is that God wants you to be obedient, obedient out of love, not out of fear. If you love the Lord, you don't need to fear him to obey him. Parents, isn't that what you want for your kids? I mean, you, we all came up in the generation, I think, that we, we got spanked and we spanked, probably. I certainly did. Um, my dad used to, you know, use words before to just scare me about the spanking that was going to come. His favorite was beat the living tar out of you. If you don't, you know, it's like I don't, didn't know I had any tar in me, living or otherwise, but it scared me to hear him say that, you know. Uh, he would start counting down from five and, ooh, you know, that would get you obedient because you're afraid of the punishment. But honestly... I didn't obey my father out of fear because I knew my dad loved me. And the times he had to discipline me, that was temporary. And sometimes right afterwards, I'd crawl up in his lap crying and he'd comfort me, you know? Um, so what I, and to, to this day, there are every now and then, it doesn't happen often, um, that I'll do something. I'm like, oh, you know, my dad would be proud of that. It's just like, you know, little stupid stuff, but, uh, you know, I moved a, a bookshelf up into my office and was putting my books out instead of being in the box. So that would make my dad proud. I didn't do it for that reason, but I know that it would have. Because my father loved me, and I knew that he was trying his best to instruct me in the right way to live for my sake, not for his. He's gone, but the teaching lives on. And the Holy Spirit is here to instruct you and bring you into uh, the, the, the fullness of God. And he wants you to do it through love, not fear. That's what, that's what uh, John's saying here. He's saying, look, if, if you really have the spirit of the Lord, you won't have a spirit of fear. And there's a difference between being afraid and having a spirit of fear. And uh, Jesus says this, if you love me, you'll keep my commandments. Not if you fear me. If you love me, you'll keep my commandments. And here's what I'm going to do. He says, I'm going to ask the Father, and he's going to give you a helper that he may be with you forever. That's the spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive because it doesn't see him or know him, but you know him because he abides with you and will be in you. He's saying, look, I'm going to give you the Holy Spirit, and you're going to follow my commandments out of love, not out of fear, out of love. We're supposed to be Holy Spirit-led. We're not supposed to be spirit of fear-driven. And I always tell people this. Holy Spirit leads, the devil drives. If you feel yourself being driven, it's not coming from God. God doesn't drive. If anybody's trying to make you make a decision right now, you know, act before midnight tonight, we'll throw in the new Ginsburg knives or whatever the, the, the thing is, act right now, that's probably not coming from God. I don't know, and you know why you know that? Because the infinite God doesn't need to put you under a deadline. He would have set this up way before the deadline. He knew that whatever you're dealing with in your life, he knew it was coming. He didn't need to wait till last minute. Oh, you have to do this now. Right? If you're feeling driven, it's not coming from God. Now, there is a fear that drives you. There is. That's not the fear that God wants you to have at all. So what kind of fear drives you? So I want to talk about two fears in the time we have left. Uh, and that's all we're going to get to today. I want to talk about human fear, and I want to talk about holy fear. Because they're different. They feel different. You know it. And I'm going to describe some situations, and you'll know when you have felt holy fear and when you have felt human fear. And holy fear is actually there for your benefit. Human fear is uh, the devil's just trying to drive you. Okay, so there are certain things that you are afraid of on a human level. There's only one that the doctors have decided, and I don't know how they know this, 
is instinctive to all humans. Does anybody know what that is? Anybody know what the mo- only one instinctive fear? Anybody can guess? No? Okay, fear of falling. I don't even want to know how they know that. I think it has to do with some kind of sensors and pranks played on newborn babies. But they actually can tell you that a newborn baby is afraid of falling, which is weird because those of you who've had newborn babies know they couldn't fall if they wanted to. They can't roll over or anything. But there's a natural fear of falling in all of us. So we'll count that out for a moment. Let's look at the rest of them. Because every other fear, according to doctors and psychologists, has been learned. But there still are natural human reactions that have caused this fear to be learned. So I'm going to give you one of my wife's, just because, you know, I'm going to tell stories on her here today. My wife is afraid of spiders. Now, she's a strong woman. Uh, she is a courageous woman. But she's just unnaturally afraid of spiders. Like, I've, like I said last night, if in the future she's sitting at Round Hill Park on a blanket and her, grand girl, his, her little granddaughter's behind her and a grizzly bear comes out of the woods and all she has is a shovel, my money's on my wife, all right? I, she's a brave woman. But she loses it when she sees spiders. She's convinced they're all capable of jumping 10 to 15 feet at a time, and they all have hidden fangs. And it doesn't matter what variation of spider we're talking, they're all deadly, right? Uh, and, and that's not as weird as some of you are nodding. It's like, yep, yeah, it's, uh, amen, sister. Let's start the anti-spider club at Spirit Chapel. Um, it's not just spiders, right? There's other things too. They all fall in the same category, cockroaches and snakes and lizards. Uh, basically, they're all things that are ugly. And there is this natural revulsion to ugly things. And we see that in, in almost everything. Now, you can force yourself past the fear. You know, I know people pet snakes and pretend they love them, but that was something they, they learned to do. And sometimes it's a good thing to pe- you know, put past that. We may have somebody in our lives who's maybe disfigured, and you're kind of, you know, the natural reaction might be revulsion, but you learn to look past that, and you learn to look to the person, and that's a very important thing, right? So we can get past it, but our natural instinct is to be afraid of something that's ugly. We're also afraid of alien things, not just aliens coming down in spaceships, although if they ever did that, I'm sure we'd be afraid of that too. And I'm talking about things that are just like unnatural to us. Like if you're walking through, I don't know why you would do this, Round Hill Cemetery at night, you know, you're just kind of walking through the grounds whistling, and suddenly you heard something calling your name, and you couldn't place it, uh, then you would say that's unnatural, and you would quicken your pace. No matter how brave you are, there would just be something about you just like a little bit faster. You feel this little prick on the back of your neck because it's not natural to have something from a graveyard calling your name. It's kind of weird. That's unnatural. It's alien to us, and it will cause you fear. Anything is unnatural or alien. If you, if you ever have something happen, I was walking out last night with the dog trying to get him to go to the bathroom before we all went to bed, and uh, I was walking down the steps with him, and something tapped me on my shoulder. It was freaky, right? Well, here, my wife been cutting branches, and she leaned them up, and there were some that were leaning over. And the weird thing was they were, they were like four feet apart, which was just perfect, because I felt it tap me, and I looked. I didn't see anything in the dark, right? Uh, I kept walking. It tapped me again. I go, okay, now, you know. I had to turn on my light to see what was going on. If I hadn't seen the branches, I would have been like, okay, that's it. Zion, we're out of here, you know, back to bed. It's creepy. There's something a little unnatural about that, that little trickle of fears because it's unnatural. It's alien. Uh, Clear and present danger also is something that you'll be afraid of. And it has to be, like, for instance, I mentioned the grizzly bear. I'm not afraid of grizzly bears, but I would be if I saw one coming out of the woods, right? It's dangerous. Uh, I'm not afraid of sharks because I don't go in the ocean. But if for some dumb reason I was in the ocean and I saw a fin circling me, I would be afraid of sharks. That's a clear and present danger, something that's dangerous to you. Uh, even if it's never hurt you before in your life, you know they're dangerous. That'll be a thing that'll cause fear. That's a natural human fear. And also declared threat or hatred. 
You know, you cut somebody off in, in traffic, you know, and they get out, they're, they're one of these hothead people, and they pull out a gun, and they say, you cut me off, and they, there's witnesses around, I'm not going to get you now, but I got your license plate, I'll figure out where you live, and I'm going to come and kill you, right? That'd be a little bit frightening, because they have a gun, they have the means, they have the capability, and they've threatened you, they're going to do something to you, and uh, that would be frightening, those little tiny trickles of fear. These are all human fears, right, that you have at some time in your life. And sometimes the devil uses these things to drive you. And sometimes he actually uses them to drive you away from God, which is really weird because God is none of these things. None of these things. In fact, God is beautiful. He's not ugly. He created beauty. Everything you consider beautiful, God created it. And uh, in the psalm, the psalmist says this in Psalm 27, One thing I ask of the Lord that I will seek after, to live in the house of the Lord all the days of my life. Why? I want to behold the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in his temple. I just want to live with the Lord and, and see his beauty every, every day. That's what the psalmist is saying. There are beings in heaven that are so overcome with the beauty of God that just sing about it all day long. Not because God makes them. They can't help themselves. He's just that beautiful. He's the most beautiful thing in the universe. He's not ugly. There's no reason for us to be afraid of that. Uh, we're, we're also not dealing with someone who's alien to us or foreign. You know, oh, God's so weird. Really? Not really. You're created in his image. You've got his DNA. This is like your dad. <laughs> it's not foreign to you. Or like your child. If you have a child that you know, came from, from your DNA, it's, he's more close to you than either one of them. He, he, has, he put his DNA in you. You're, you're created in his image. So he's not foreign to you. He's not alien. He is you. He's part of you. And coming back to God is just coming back to the way it was supposed to be. Uh, God has not, is not a clear and present danger. He's not rampaging around looking for ways to hurt you. In fact, he protects you. Psalm 91. He who dwells in the secret place of the Most High shall abide under the shadow of the Almighty. I will say of the Lord, He is my refuge, my fortress, and my God will I trust. He, he's protecting us from anything that might hurt us. He's, he protects those He loves. He says over and over and over again, I am here, I will protect you. He has never, you know, kind of rampaged around hurting those He loves. He protects those He loves. And He's certainly not declared any kind of, a, I'm going to get you. Because God wouldn't have to declare and wait. It was just, I'm going to get you. Oh, there you are. You're dead. He wouldn't have to do that. But he's never said, I'm going to get you. He's not after you like that. He's trying to get you back. That's what he's trying to do. That's his declared purpose is to get you back. And in Isaiah, it says this, when you pass through the waters, I'll be with you. I'm not going to get you. I'm going to be with you. Through the rivers, they won't overflow you. When you walk through the fire, you won't be scorched. The flame won't burn you. He says, I'm going to actually place myself in harm's way to protect you. I will be with you in those times to protect you. He hasn't declared any kind of threat or hatred to you. He's only declared your safety is important to him. And that's what he says. So none of these things should cause fear of the Lord. He's none of these things, the, the natural kind of human, we could go on, we could list a bunch of them. None of these things that we think about when we name fear applies to God. So what's the, them, what are they talking about when we start saying the fear of the Lord? Well, we get an idea if we keep looking in the scriptures because eventually we get them both in the same word, right? So in Psalm 33, 8, the psalmist says this, let all the earth fear the Lord. Let all the earth fear the Lord. Let all the inhabitants of the world stand in awe of him. And this word awe is oftentimes translated fear because there is a sense of fear that exists in awe. The, the Hebrew word, in case those of you like to know these things, actually means to stand in awe of 
or to shrink in fear. It's both. Stand in awe, shrink in fear. It's, but it's just like there's something so awesome that uh, it, it, it arrests you, right? But listen, awe is simply static fear because awe can turn to fear, but it isn't normally. Normally when you see, when you're in awe of something, and look, we totally misuse the word awesome today. I get it, you know. Getting the last piece of pizza is not awesome. Oh, there's pizza left. Awesome. No, that's not awesome. You're not standing in awe of pizza. I don't care how good it is. Um, but there are certain things in your life that do cause awe, and you have felt these. And when you feel these, I want you to think about God, because this is the kind of thing that is supposed to draw us to God and give us an idea of what it means to serve an awesome God. So there's, I'm going to give you four of them. There's probably more, but I came up with four. Four things that cause awe. Great size. Big, really, really, really big things are awesome. Have you ever been to Niagara Falls? Man, that place is awesome. I don't know if you've ever been there. There's a little cliff that you can go under, and you, like, watch the water fall over top of you. It's like the entire ocean falls every second. It's, like, unbelievable how that is. They even had that boat, that made of the mist boat that goes up, like, right next to the fall, you know, and it's, it's like, splashing with water and everything else. And you can't even hear when you get down there. The roar of that is just amazing. Maybe you've been to, like, the Grand Canyon or something. Uh, but there's just, there's, there's size has an awesomeness to it. And uh, that is something that we could say that God is, and, and we would be right. Who has measured the waters in the hollow of his hand? <laughs> That's the oceans he's saying. He says he holds that in the hollows of his hand. You know? He says, or the breadth of his hand marks the heavens. So you know, he's like, okay, from here to here, that's your galaxy. God's really big. You know, God has an immense size to him. And if you ever really saw him, if you ever came in, in, in contact with God, uh, and you saw him in all of his size and all of his glory, it'd just be mind-numbing. It's awe-inspiring. Have you ever had a moment where you've been staring at something and forgot to breathe? <laughs> like you really, it's like breathtaking. You've heard that expression, it takes your breath away. I mean, maybe there aren't many things like that, but, it, but if you've lived a while and you've seen some things, there has been a moment like, oh, I should start breathing again because it just like took your breath away. This is this awe we're talking about and it's not far from fear. Let me give you an example. If I were in that little made of mist boat and we're kind of curling around, you know, Niagara Falls and it's falling down and it's kind of cool. And then all of a sudden I hear that this is your captain speaking. Uh, I have some bad news for you. We have lost all power in our engines and the current is drawing us inexorably closer to the falls. If any of you know any prayers, now would be the time to say them, right? My moment of awe has just turned into my moment of sheer terror and fear because I realize I'm moving towards that and I can't stop it, right? So that's what I'm saying. Awe is simply static fear. It's coming in there. Okay, also power. We talk about power. Uh, power, God is very powerful. He counts the number of the stars and calls them all by name. Great is our Lord and mighty in power. His understanding is infinite. It's extremely powerful. He created the most powerful thing in the universe with his word. I mean, everything comes from the sun, right? We know the sun's this huge, powerful thing. And so I forget how many I, I used to know. It's like 157 nuclear power plants operating at once. It's the sun. And he simply said, let there be light. And there it was. With his word. That's powerful. That's immense power, right? If you've ever, uh, I don't know who did this when they were a kid. I, I, I thought a lot of people did, but last night people were out looking at me like I was nuts. So maybe it was just me. Anybody take a 9-volt battery and stick it on your tongue? Has anybody ever done it? Okay, okay. To test it or to see how long you could hold it? I'm just curious. Anybody? To test it. Okay. So, so that, that, that's just me. I think my brothers talked me into that because I don't think anybody else did it last night either. But yes, yeah, so how long can you last? 
I think I won. I think they, okay, you win. And it's, I think that's how the game ended, I think. That's what it's like to have two older brothers. But uh, anyway, so, the, you know, it's nine volts. And it's, you know, pretty, pretty tart, you know, when, when you're holding it there for a while, when it's brand new. It's, uh, wow. Um, now, nobody ever would take two, you know, battery terminals and put them on your car and put those in your tongue and you get fried tongue, right? That's only 12 volts. Lightning has about 500 to 750,000 of those. Have you ever been near lightning when it hit? You know, what I was taught as a kid is probably isn't true, but I was taught as a kid that if you see lightning, you start counting until you get the thunder, right? One Mississippi, two Mississippi. That's supposed to be miles. I don't know. So that's how many miles away it is. Have you ever had lightning flash before you could say one, it was <laughs> the thunder was right there because it was that close? That's power, right? That is awesome power. If you've ever been there, uh, that's a very, very awesome power. And God like does that like nothing. That's nothing compared to the power of God. Okay, uh, glory. Now, now, I'm skipping over beauty because we talked about beauty already, but glory is something we don't really know much of today. We know fame. We know some of that. You know, we know famous people. But uh, we really don't understand glory because we don't have anybody, I don't think, anymore who's glorious. Um, there used to be kings and things that they would you know, talk about the king's glory, but we don't really have that. Um, you know, the closest we get to is rock stars or something, and that's just kind of weird. But, you know, there was a time, even with rock stars, like when the Beatles came over here, people would see them and pass out. You know, like, oh, I just couldn't handle it. It's like, I saw the Beatles, I passed out. Um, you know, that's, that's as close as we probably come to glory. But glory is higher than that, and, and God has incredible glory. And, and if we've ever seen anything really glorious, we kind of get a, get a glimpse of it. But that, again, will take your breath away. There's a really funny story in Exodus. Um, Moses and God are really close. God says of Moses, there's no, never been another man like him. I speak to him face to face like a friend. Now, clearly, he spoke to him face to face, but there was some kind of a veil between them. Um, but, you know, he spoke to him plainly, he said, uh, which is really great because I don't know if you've ever read Ezekiel. God did not speak to that man plainly. You know, he was always kind of these, these nightmarish kind of visions. But he spoke to God, he spoke to Moses plainly. And Moses started really becoming comfortable with his relationship with the Lord. And uh, I actually think this is kind of a precursor to the kind of relationship God wants to have with us. Anyway, so he, uh, they had some, you know, back and forth, and uh, God calls Moses his friend. And so then Moses says, can you show me your glory? I want to see you as you are, not with the veil. I want to see you as you are in all of your glory. And God says, you know what? I'm going to cause my glory to pass in front of you. Not, not like so you can look at it. I'm going to cause it to pass in front of you. What he actually does, he takes him, he puts him in the crevice of a rock, and he puts his hand over him, and then he lets his glory pass in front of him. Because anything else, he said, would kill you. He said, you couldn't look me in the face and live. You couldn't handle the glory. It would kill you instantly. Because if we came face to face with God in all of his glory, we would realize how sinful we really are. And sin in the face of God's glory has no choice but to die. His heart would stop. He says, I'm not going to do that to you. I'll give you a hint. And he does. And the glory passes by and Moses is probably sitting that rock going, why did I ask? Why did I ask? Because it was just like amazing. You know, it's, it's, uh, it's just this huge glory. Okay. Uh, and then we see in Revelation, you know, the last book of the Bible, uh, he, he says this, is talking about Jerusalem and the city where the Lord dwells has no need of sun or moon to shine on it for the glory of God gives it light. Imagine that. God's glory is so vast and so powerful they don't even need any lamps. He says, that, and in fact, there's never night there because the glory of God is there. It drives all darkness 
away. That is God. Now, if you have that kind of understanding of God, it, you understand what this trickle of fear is that we're supposed to have when we even think about him. Because that's who he is. The wonderful thing is, even though we stand in awe of him and we have this healthy fear of all things holy and righteous, uh, we remember that he is merciful to those who love him. In fact, that's what he says to Moses here. He says, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy and I will have compassion on who I will have compassion. So the great thing is no matter, no matter how big and powerful and beautiful and, and glorious he is, he loves you. He does. He really does love you. And he has worked very, very hard to get you back to him. He's just your loving father. He wants you back where you're supposed to be, which is with him. And if we catch that and we have that honest fear of the Lord, that fear of the Lord drives you to want to know him better. Because he's this great and glorious thing. Right? I want to know him better. But more than anything else, I just want to be with him. If I can be with him and love him and have him love me, that's all I need in life. If we can get there, if we can get the point like, like John was saying, you know, perfect, perfected love, where we just love God. He's our dad. He's our, hum, he's our heavenly father, dad. And uh, I just want to be with him. God, that's all I want. I want to be with you. And so I need to know what not to do because that's keeping me from being closer to you. I just want to be as close as I can be to God for as long as I can be. If you have that kind of an idea, then everything else kind of falls into place. God always looks at your heart. He doesn't need you obeying him out of fear. The only reason you obey him is because he's going to strike you down if you don't. Is not what he wants. He could have had that relationship, but that's not what he wants. That's Pharisees. Jesus did not come to make you Christian Pharisees. Jesus came to make you children of God. And as long as your heart's in the right place, you don't have to worry about a lot of the things we spend a lot of time fearing, we don't have to worry about, but our heart needs to always be after God. Our heart needs to be the right place. He knows, by the way, why you're studying his scripture. And some people are doing it out of fear, and some people are saying, I just want to know how much sin I can get away with and still make it to heaven. There's you know, two of the wrong reasons to study scripture. And I think it's a lot more prevalent in the church than you think. Jesus speaks on this a little bit. And I'll close with this. Do not fear those who can kill the body. All the human fear that you have. He says, don't worry about that. They're unable to kill the soul. Rather, fear him who has the power to destroy both soul and body in hell. That's who you should be afraid of, he's saying. Not the stuff happening here on earth. You're focused way too much on that. Worry about what happens. In other words, what Jesus is saying is, look, it's not God's unpredictable actions that should make you fear. Because that's what, you know, a lot of people, I, if I could just make God predictable, then I can know how to get all my prayers answered and how to not make him mad, right? I just want to make God predictable, that's all. And he's unpredictable to me now, so I'm going to try to learn more. Jesus says, don't worry about God's unpredictable nature. What you should be worried about is the predictable nature of God. Because the predictable action of a just God who gave you the opportunity to repent and come to him and you didn't, his only recourse, the only thing a just God can do is to send you to hell. That's it. Jesus says, don't worry about the unpredictable stuff. You should be worried about the predictable thing because a just God has to send sinful creatures to hell. Has to. Which is why he is giving you an outstretched hand, Jesus Christ, blood-stained, outstretched hand, and the Holy Spirit to guide you. That's what we should be thinking about. Would you all please pray with me? 
Heavenly Father, I thank you that you have done so much for us and you don't leave it to chance.